We are continuing in Luke 15 this morning. And we are in our second series. I, I mentioned last week the Prodigal Son series, part one. It's actually titled the Prodigal Sons series. Uh, and the reason for that is what we saw last week is that Jesus is talking to scribes and Pharisees. And they have come and grumbled against the return of tax collectors and sinners to Jesus. And so he tells three parables. We're going to talk about them. But in this parable, he gives us, yes, the son that's frivolous, which is what prodigal means. He spends all his money in reckless living. But what we found was the older brother had just as much recklessness in his heart. He wanted to spend money. He wanted the, the estate for himself. He was just going to go about it by following the rules. And so we have this prodigal sense going on, but what we see in both is that they both are rebelling against the father. And so this morning I wanted to go back into it because what we didn't spend time doing was looking really at that middle section of the younger brother returning and the father's response. And it's there that I think the audience, the audience being the scribes and the Pharisees, and you and I, elder brothers, if we're honest, people who often think we have it together, um, or when we don't have it together, we often think we'll get it together on our own effort. We bypass the father. And what we see with this younger brother is he's trying to bypass the father. And yet when he comes, he's melted because of the father's love. So we're going to really examine that relationship more fully this morning and that re true repentance looks like. Just as we lead into our passage, I'm not going to read the verses, but again, the first two verses of 15 set the stage. Jesus is teaching and he's doing his ministry and tax collectors and sinners are repentantly coming and returning uh, to, to him and to the kingdom. The Pharisees and the scribes are grumbling and he gives two parables before ours. The first one is about sheep. You've heard it, 99, a man has 100 sheep, one is lost. He leaves the 99 and he goes to the 100 and he searches and he rescues and then he throws a party. He says, rejoice with me. And then the next one is a woman who's lost a coin and she digs and she searches the ground and the, and the flooring of houses then would have been dirt. And she, it takes forever, but she finds the coin. And again, she says, rejoice with me. And then we come to our passage in 15, starting in verse 11. And he said, there was a man who had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, father, give me the share of the property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, who sent him into the fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread? But I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. 
I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Now his older son was in the field and As he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, your brother has come and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him. But he answered his father, look, these many years I have served you and I have never disobeyed your command. But you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property of prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad. For this, your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. This is the word of the Lord. Heavenly Father, we praise you for the truths in this parable, truths that this side of heaven will never plumb the depths of. We will never fully grasp your love, but we long to, by degrees. We long to more and more through, through a relationship to you through Jesus, through your spirit pouring out uh, your mercies into our lives through daily repentance. We long to see more and more this This image of you, a father who delights, who runs, who has compassion, who kisses, who sees us. Lord, there's so much in our flesh and our sin in this world that keeps us from fully embracing that reality. Would you break through that a little bit more this morning for all of us? Amen. A few moments ago, my daughter leaned over and said, uh, can we start doing Christmas songs? How many of you are ready for Christmas? We have a rule in our house, we don't do any, anything Christmas after Thanksgiving. Does anybody have that rule? How many of you are breaking it this year? It's like, forget it. We went to Walmart yesterday to buy Christmas lights. I thought about putting them up, but it was really windy and didn't want to blow off the roof. But we own the lights now. They're in our possession. And they'll go up this week. What is it about Christmas? There's something in us that just thinks... I long for something. I I need something there. And and yet if we're rational, and I don't mean to be a downer, it's not like you can identify the perfect Christmas in your past. Remember last week if you were here, we talked about how the longing of the son for home is in each of us. That we have this deep inner urging to, to find home, which is ultimately in our heavenly father. And I think Christmas is just one example, whether you're practicing Christmas completely like the culture or whether you really follow Advent, however you do it, it just, it, it has this image of coming home, being reset, renewed, ready for something new, right? And we know this prodigal son is looking at the pods that the pigs are eating. That's 2020. Like that's what 2020 is. You're looking at the pods and you're like, seriously, one more of those? I'm starving. And so I think Jesus is saying, hey, let's, Let's return. Let's come home. But as we process how to repent, how to return, I want you to hear repentance is a good thing. It's a returning. Right? When Jesus starts his ministry, he says, repent. 
the kingdom of heaven is near. And the Greek word means to do a 180. But Jesus is saying, do the 180 toward me. Repent and come to me. And in our passage, as we saw last week, he is this father and elder brother. He's like the perfect elder brother who goes searching the sheep and the coin. But he's also the father who's delighting in the return. That's what we talked about last week. And so this week, I just want to dive in a little bit more to what repentance looks like. And what we're going to find is repentance is not so much about a change of behavior, a returning to some sort of past behaviors or some maybe long sought after disciplines you've always wanted to be able to achieve. Repentance is running into the arms of the Father. It's always relational. And so we're going to look at false repentance from our passage, true repentance, and then maybe hopefully understand some of the process. So repentance, as, as I read in the beginning, repentance and faith are really two sides of a coin. I, I read the, the Sibs, Richard Sibbs quote, but many have followed in that thinking to say, you know, repentance isn't something you sort of do every now and again out there somewhere. Repentance and faith are like two sides of one coin. Every time I come back to the presence of my father, in a way I'm returning in repentance. It's not just confession of sin, though it includes that, but it's a relational return. Um, Luther, as you, Martin Luther, who sparked the Reformation with his 95 Theses, many of you have heard of the very first one. He quotes the, the, the sermon by Jesus, repent. He says, when our Savior said repent, he did not mean uh, once and for all. He meant your life is to be one of continual repentance. Now, if you're not a Christian, then you begin with repentance unto life. That's where you first, first ever see Jesus as your loving Savior. You first see God not as your judge but as your Father. That's repentance unto life. But for the Christian... That's not just something that was in the background. That's something we do continually. We come freshly to the gospel and, fr and understanding of, of his gospel for repentance. So with that background, let's talk about false repentance. False repentance is when we think we contribute something, right? Uh, have you ever said, I firmly resolve with the help of grace to sin no more? You've seen a sin pattern. You're disgusted by it. And you just go to God with this sort of resolve. I'm never going to do that again. That's, that's admirable, but that's not repentance. In fact, it's not even admirable. Because what you're saying is, Jesus, I'm going to do so good, I don't actually need you. And so we somehow make a mistake and we think maybe grace will sort of be my motivation. It's, it's the poster on the wall and I'm going to get better. And that's false repentance. Okay, where is that in our passage? That's exactly what this young son does. The younger son has gone to a far country. He knows he's sinned. He knows he's squandered his wealth. He knows he's cut off all relationship with his father and his brother in the village. But when he comes to his senses, verse 17, when he comes to himself, he says these words, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish with hunger? And he has a plan. Verse 18, I will arise, I will go to my father, I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. A lot of people say, see, he's repentant. And the repentance in this passage is when he came to himself. 
And I will argue, yes, it began there, but that wasn't where the repentance happens. Well, the biggest problem in that repentance, first of all, it sounds a little bit like groveling, but it's not all bad. But it's the very part that most of us are drawn to. I will become like one of your hired servants. That's humility. Wow, he's humble. Upon further examination, uh, and uh, Kenneth Bailey really goes into this in his commentary, but in that culture, a hired servant still had social status. He wasn't asking to become a slave, right? He wasn't saying, can I come back into the home? He was saying, can I come back, benefit from the wealth of the estate by working for you, but then living in the village and sort of having my own existence and still keeping my distance from you. Because remember, the sin was not that he just left, it's that he cut ties with his father. And his repentance so far is not, I want to come back and build a relationship with you, it's I need help. My life is miserable, things are really bad, and I guess I'll come sort of near you and try to get some benefits from that. So it looks amazing, but it's not amazing. Where are you contributing to your repentance? Now, let me also throw this out. A lot of people, I think, rather than repenting with penance, what I'm going to do, I have a feeling that a lot of us don't repent because we think if I were to repent, there's like a mountain of things I've got to stop doing. There's so much stuff I've got to figure out. And once I start to figure that out, I think I'll be ready to repent. Anyone do that? That's penance. That's not the gospel. Luther nails it. Um, he says this in his commentary on Galatians. When you are confronted by your sin and you go to God, do not presume henceforth to satisfy the law as one who intends to live a better life. And he's commenting on, this, on the verse where Paul says, if you seek to be justified by the law, then Christ is of no value to you. Now, think about it. We would tell a non-Christian, you need to go to the cross and you need to see that there's nothing good in you and the blood of Christ will cover you and then you'll be clean and that's what makes you acceptable before God. But as a Christian, I want to have grace, but I don't necessarily want to go to the cross again. I don't necessarily want to go back to the place of the beginning and say, I'm yet again an enemy of the cross. And so we tend to, if we're not careful, start peppering our repentance and our Christian lives with a goal to do good works. Um, and, and many people have said this, but it's a Flannery O'Connor um, novel, Wise Blood, where she's talking about one of the main characters whose goal was to be so good, he didn't meet Jesus. I think that's a lot of our goals. If you really get down to what you're after, is it's like this pendulum swing. It's like on one hand, I'm in sin and I'm doing bad stuff. And when I'm ready, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to swing the pendulum and I'm going to skip right over Jesus and the Father and intimacy into basically becoming the elder brother. I'm going to be so good that I really won't feel bad about myself anymore. and need the cross. And a lot of us either are on this side thinking we're doing it wrongly, it's false repentance, or we're on this side going, I'm not even going to try. It's too much. Um, a great illustration of this, I've, I've tried it a thousand different ways from the pulpit. I'm going to try it one more time because that's just how I'm built. Is John 13, feet washing. Jesus is demonstrating 
he's, it's a living parable. Remember the feet washing there at the Passover meal. Normally a, a, a slave would have been there to wash the feet and leave the room. There's nobody there. The tension's mounting. And Jesus disrobes and sits down. He's going to start washing their feet. And morally speaking, that's the grossest thing. Not only physically dirty from the actual ground, but just ceremonially. They've, they've washed every part of them. They've gotten ready. And they've come to this dinner. And the last thing that needs the cleansing is the feet. And so Jesus tells the disciples, you all have been washed. But you need this feet washing. And he comes to Peter. And now what drew me to the passage when I read it in seminary and just, I thought, Peter, it's me. Like I, he's often you and I. What he says is what everyone's thinking. And here's what he says. You're never going to wash my feet. Okay, that's strange. You shouldn't have said that. Jesus says, if I don't wash you, you have no place with me. So instead of saying, Lord, I'm so sorry. Here are my feet. Do you know what he says? Then wash my hands in my head. You know what Jesus says to that? You've already had a bath. Like, why am I going to give you a, a, a sponge bath? The point is, Peter doesn't want his sin to be seen. And so often, if we can bring all, if we can come in and say, look, I'm going to do, I want everything that's good about me to be sort of equated with the bad, I can sort of bring in a lot of goodness, then the actual part that's the most painful and humiliating might not be as noticeable. That's penance. It's almost there. It's almost good. But what Jesus was telling Peter to do was, let me wash your feet. And the intimacy and the awkwardness and the brokenness in that moment had to be undoing for him. And when Jesus returns his place to this seat, he says, you know why I did that? So that you would wash one another's feet. Only as we allow Jesus to come to our most broken places, and as Jason did such a great job on our confession of sin, you guys have broken places. I have broken places. And if we don't allow Jesus to come to those particular places, then we're not going to be of any use to loving our neighbors and, and our fellow Christians well at all. So that's false repentance. What are you adding? Or why are you avoiding? I think the two things I keep wanting to hammer our view of false repentance can be I'm avoiding um, even trying to repent because I've got to get it together first. Or maybe we're actively trying to do our repentance, but we're really just promising to do better next time, you know. And we're thinking about behaviors. If I could string together six or seven days of, of not doing that awful thing I feel horrible about. That would be wonderful, but that's not the aim of repentance. What's the aim of repentance? To our second point, our kind of our major second, last point, I'll do a little bit of in the third thought of, of the process, but is the goal is relationship restored, right? The state of repentance of, of faith is it's coming from the far country back to the, our home by faith. We've wandered away. It's important to understand that sin is harmful. I talked about this last week. I think we don't understand that. We know sin isn't good morally speaking. We, we know that as Christians we're supposed to not do it. We have all this kind of. But when you read this passage, you see a father who's genuinely nervous for that child. He knows when you've left home, you're in grave danger. And whether you've left home to go to the far country physically 
or whether like the older brother, you've simply stayed locally, but you're far away from the Father. It devours your soul. It's a danger. It crushes you. It leads to all sorts of the things that we struggle with, like anxiety and depression and so many things. And so true repentance begins primarily with a coming back to the Father from an orphan-like faith to a sonship faith. Let's look at this story together. The son has a plan. He's got it figured out, and he's walking into the region. And then famously, we know the story um, starting in, where is he? Where am I? Sorry. Okay, starting in verse 20. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion. Remember that word compassion from the um, Good Samaritan parable? He, the, the man, the Samaritan, had compassion. It's a word that is mostly spoken of Jesus when he sees his wayward children. It's, it's, a, it's, the, it's the spelunkthesomai, it's the God, it's the, it's the innards. God the Father doesn't go, oh, you're going to come back. What's taking you so long? I, th- I figured you'd see it correctly. He's like watching. And when he sees you, he has compassion for you. Do you believe that? And he runs. This guy runs. Now, some of you, many of you have heard a lot of teaching on this. I won't belabor it. But in the Middle East, the higher your, your status, the slower you walk. So if you were a man of stature, you walked slowly. And everybody knew there goes, you know, the owner of the vast realm or whatever. This father hikes up his robe and sprints with these white legs, with old man, the hair's gone, and he's just sprinting, and it's embarrassing. But yet everyone starts to see what he's doing, and he's running toward his son. And if you're the son, you're just overwhelmed. You know he's not running out of anger. He's running out of love. And he doesn't just stop there. He comes to that child, and he holds him, and he kisses him. And the Greek there, it's not just a single, you know, kiss on the cheek. It's like repeated kissing. There's no doubt. The son has no doubt that his father has received him back into his care. I, um, on the front of our worship guide, there's a quote by Spurgeon I just want to read. It was there last week as well. Charles Spurgeon from the 1800s. There's a second quote coming from him as well. Just a phenomenal, phenomenal preacher from the 1800s. Um, in London, but he says this the prodigal son was resolved to come, yet he was half afraid. But we read that his father ran. Slow are the steps of repentance, but swift are the feet of forgiveness. God can run where we can scarcely limp, and if we are limping toward him, he will run toward us. Though the father was out of breath, he was not out of love. So, where does repentance happen in our passage? Notice the son, the father's kissing him, and the son has his speech ready, and it's, he begins to tell his rehearsed speech. Father, this is verse 21, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Verse 22, but the father said to his servants, and he goes on, I'll tell you what he says in a minute. Do you hear that? A lot of people say, he interrupted him. Yes, Maybe. More commentators believe what actually happened there is the son changed. He went from, I'm going to be a hired servant. I'm going to earn my way back. I'm going to, I'm going to go out and work every day. and I'm going to pay off this sin. 
to when he received the father's overwhelming emotional acceptance and love, his heart melted. And I almost envision as he's reciting these words, I have sinned against heaven and before you. And then he says, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. I've wondered this, that if, he, if when he concocted that speech, he meant it more culturally speaking. Like as he's uttering his speech, I'm curious if that's when his heart melted. Like, I just said this, I'm not worthy. And immediately the father says, get the robe, the robe of righteousness. Get the ring, get the sandals, kill the fattened calf. You are worthy. You are a son. You are a daughter. Um, Thomas Watson has these six categories of repentance that I've tried to find in the passage. I'm going to just name them quickly as we think about true repentance. Seeing your sin, sorrowing over your sin, confessing your sin particularly, having shame over your sin. Now that's important. He doesn't mean carrying shame. He just means, I think it's fair to say when we look at our sin, there should be some, some blush, some I can't believe that. Hating the sin. Now, at this point, he says, your sin's separate from you. I'm hating what I've done. And then the last, only at the very, very end of his six steps is turning from sin. And where is that in our passage? I think it's what's not said. Here's how I'm envisioning it. Just close your eyes. Envision this with me. The guests have left. The dishes have been done. The fire is still crackling. The father and the son are just sitting there, amazed at what's transpired over the evening. And they're just having a conversation. And there's a moment of silence. And the son just looks at his dad. And he says, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. And the dad just fills his eyes with tears and says, I love you. And the son says, Dad, there are things I did that you have no way to know. Can I tell you? And he would begin to articulate and, and just say, I'm so sorry for the things I've done. But as he's doing that, he's doing that in the embrace of the father, knowing he's fully brought back into sonship. That it, there's no fear. Do you understand what I'm saying? Repentance is re, re, connecting with the father, and it precedes all the stuff we think of it. So often it's the fruit of repentance we're, con we're focused on. But it starts relationally. The Father loves you. And what I love about this passage and I love about this repentance is it's a celebration. Even before there's any fruit. That's what we're so, we're so orphaned. We're like, well, I've got to probably string together a couple of hours before, you know, to make sure it took. Do you ever think that way? I mean, here the dad's like, no, no, no. I've already butchered the calf. The celebration is on. The joy of repentance. Do you hear it? Coming back into the relationship with the Father. False repentance doesn't come back to Jesus. False repentance bypasses him. Some, some great ways to look at whether or not you're practicing false repentance versus true repentance. And by the way, if you say, well, I'm not practicing any repentance, well, then that's false repentance. Okay, so when I use the term false repentance, I'm referring to anything I'm doing as a Christian not going to Jesus. When you think of, do you spend intimate times with the Father? Do you have vital, intimate prayers with him? If not, 
um, then you're probably living in the far country with the younger brother or in the far country with the older brother. And by the way, I don't, I don't have a lot of time to say this, but it just occurred to me as I processed this recently, this mor- not this morning, but yesterday, again, that the older brother, like, did you notice that the village knew there was a party? And, and the servants had the thing, and the food's been cooked. And What was the older brother? How did he miss it? Did you ever wonder that? Whatever he's doing, well, he's working. Well, no, because servants were working with him. He is so disengaged with the heartbeat of his father that they could have a feast and music and an entire thing happening for probably several hours already, and he's missed it. He's in the far country. So you can be in the far country thinking I'm close to God, and you can be in the far country in complete rebellion. And the, the goal is to come back to the Father. And I'm just going to point out the ways that false repentance leads to anxiousness over felt needs. True repentance is trusting the Father, having a growing confidence in his loving care. False repentance leads, leads, leads us to living like success and fail. Am I winning? Am I losing in everything? When you have this true repentance, true intimacy with the Father, you learn to live in partnership with him. Everything that comes your way is, is in partnership. It's his world, it's his creation, and you're, you're partnering with him. Are these the steps you're taking? Are these the truths of your life? Let's talk about the process. How would we get there? I sense that all of us want to get there, and maybe we just don't know how. So I'm going to be as practical as I can be. And I know we have just a few moments. Number one, you're going to have to go there before you feel like it. The son came to his senses because of the hunger, but he certainly didn't come there in his heart yet, right? And so I want to just paint the picture that repentance doesn't happen when you feel like it. As a non-Christian, the Holy Spirit has to come in and open your eyes. But as a believer who has the Holy Spirit, we are now given the power to bring ourselves into the space where God can see us and move toward us. Does that make sense? Let me read you a quote by another Spurgeon quote. He suffered from horrible depression, horrible debilitating depression, several different spans of his life. And he writes this, a curious idea people have of what repentance is. Many fancy that some tears are to be shed and So many groans are to be heaved, and so much despair is to be endured. They are greatly in error. Still, I know what they mean. For in the days of my darkness, I used to feel the same way. I desired to repent, but I thought that I could not do it. And yet, all the while, I was repenting. Odd as it may sound, I felt that I could not feel. I used to get in a corner and weep because I could not weep. I fell into bitter sorrow because I could not sorrow for my sin. What a jumble it all is when in our unbelieving state, we begin to judge our own condition. It's like a blind man looking at his own eyes. My heart was melted because I thought that my heart was as hard as a stone. My heart was broken to think that it would not break. Now I can see that I was exhibiting the very thing which I thought I did not possess, but then I knew not where I was. Friend, let this be your comfort that God sees you when you begin to repent. He sees you with the eye of intense interest. No watcher on the lonely castle top ever saw the first gray of light in the morning with more joy 
than that with which God beholds the first desire in your heart. You may have despised him, but you will know him yet to be your father and your friend. How beautiful is the, are those words that, that if you can simply get yourself to this place to say, Father, by faith, help me to sorrow over my sin. I believe, help my unbelief. Right? He then picks up the pace and he runs to you. Do you believe that? And I'm not suggesting that every single time you do that, you'll feel a certain way and that's a part of the promise. But the point is, if we're waiting around in the far country, it, the repentance isn't going to happen like that. Our job, our discipline is to come, open the scriptures, open a journal, talk to a friend, do whatever you have to do to just begin to say, Lord, I've been wandering from you. And he will throw a party for you. He will come at you. I want to conclude with a story that just, I think, illustrates this, and it just moved me. And um, I'm going to try to hide as much of the details as I can. But some, some friends of ours um, recently adopted a little girl, and she um, had severe trauma. And she's like six years old and had some severe trauma in her past. And so she's been getting in trouble at school. And at her particular school, when she gets in trouble, they, like, immediately call mom and dad. And someone, you, I think someone has to go get her, like, at that moment. So it's very disruptive. They have their biological children. This child's actually fostering, turning in, becoming adopted. And the mom reached out and just said, I am struggling. I thought I could do this. And really cried out for prayer. Well... This particular day, she was at the principal's office again. It had been, it had happened daily for a while. But then a 30-day period went by, and then she's back at the principal's office. And so the mom is just, I can't believe it. You know, we have to go get her. It's so disruptive. And then through, after prayer, the mom puts this post, post on Facebook. Um, they decide to do something a little different. The girl gets out of the van with dad, and it gets out, and she's home. And she knows she's in trouble. And as she gets out, out of the front door bursts mom and the other children. And they yell, surprise. And she's like, what's going on? And they had made her a cake. And they threw her a party. Because they said, it's been 30 days. You've gone 30 days. Let's celebrate. And her countenance completely lifted up. And she came into this party. And, and here's her new home. And everyone's skin is different, and she's not sure where she stands. And here she's being loved and cherished. And I promise you she changed. I promise you she repented. That, that her response to this party is, I am home. Are you home? Do you believe that Jesus loves you like that? He tells us the parables, if a father who's evil can do it, why would your heavenly father not do it? I just told you a story of a parent who, though being fallen, was able to show that kind of grace. Why can't we believe that our father and our elder brother Jesus love us like that? Will you believe that? Let's pray. Jesus, we praise you for your gospel. We wander, we wander so many times, so many ways. Lord, we put ourselves in positions of harm, and you have compassion. And Lord, we know theologically the most beautiful truth is your spirit's the one that's even driving us back to you. 
So even when we barely limp into your presence, it's still you bringing us there. But then you promise to run, to embrace, to kiss. And I really suspect that for most of us, that's too intimate. Like Peter, we just don't know what to do with it. Holy Spirit, soften our hearts. Teach us to receive your mercy and your grace. Teach us to see repentance as joy-filled homecoming. And teach us to do it all the time. In your name we pray. Amen.